Father God, we love you. That song, Our God is Greater, Our God is Stronger, it is an awesome thing that we can say that and know that it is true no matter whatever else is put in the other column. You are still greater, you are still stronger, and we need that today. We need you to come down by your great power and open up this book that you've written to us to see you and to know you. I pray that you'd remove every error from my mouth, anything that I would say that would be unhelpful to um, my friends here and myself, Father God. I pray that you would help us understand the truth in your word so that we can magnify you and pursue you with every ounce of strength that we have. Father God, I ask for that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. So in one of... The saddest points in all of Scripture, David, the king of Israel, having committed the horrific sins of adultery and murder, says to God, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is Psalm 51 verses 7 through 12. It's just a a portion of David's prayer of repentance. And I wanted to begin with this because last week we talked about the centrality of God's Word in the life of the believer. And that God's Word is a, a means for us to see Him and experience joy only found in Him. And that is exactly what David is wrestling with here. If you notice the language that he uses, if God's word is a means to know him and to enjoy him, that joy must be the wellspring of our life and our happiness and our gladness. That joy must be what holds us up uh, throughout our lives. And so we can see in this passage the greatest enemy of joy in our lives. He says, Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken, Father, rejoice. Restore the joy of your salvation. So David's joy in God is being assaulted here. It's suffering. But by what? Is it by Satan? No, ultimately not. Is it by circumstances? Well, in part, but ultimately, it's not by circumstances outside of himself. Is it by a physical threat? David sings a lot about physical threats coming to kill him. They did that a lot in the Psalms. Is that what this is about? And the answer is no. The enemy here is the greatest enemy to joy in the world, and it's called sin. David says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities because he can clearly see that the greatest obstacle to him experiencing and enjoying God, his Savior, is his own sin. 
his own dishonoring of God. And so at this point in our series that explores what God's word means to us, what it means uh, for us to have the words of God and the significance of scripture, we're going to turn to this great question, the question that David is struggling with. How does God's word preserve our joy in him? How does the Bible function in our lives to fight sinful desires in our hearts that distract us from him and dishonor God? Or another way to put it would be, how does the Bible make us more like Jesus? How does the Bible bring us into greater conformity with the image of Christ Jesus, his grace, his love, his truthfulness? Does it just like magically happen and we're sort of passive in this role? Or is it something else? And to begin to answer that question, what I want to do is I want to turn to a passage we saw the first week we started this series, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul again. And he says, we all, so he's talking to the Corinthian church and to Risen Hope 2,000 years later, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the Lord's image, from one degree of glory to another. For this, the transformation, comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, what we said the first week when we looked at this passage was that the ultimate purpose of this book, the ultimate purpose of this scripture, underneath all of what the scripture shows us about history, about humanity, about life, about pursuing joy, is to see the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Every letter in this book is pushing towards that reality. Everything in this book is designed to communicate the worth of Jesus Christ and our need to trust him and love him and find ultimately our highest joy in him. And Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 4 after this passage. He refers to this this light as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So when we behold Jesus, we are looking at the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he also calls it the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what scripture shows us. And what we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that this light and glory is encountered when we, with the eyes of our heart, see Jesus Christ our Lord. And we do that in this book. We do that in the scriptures. And so Paul in this verse is saying that our faces are not veiled. The rest of the world is veiled. They cannot see this. But if you trust Christ Jesus, you have an unveiled face. You have belief in him and it's anchoring you to the realities that are in the scripture and we can behold his glory. It is an awesome honor to be able to see the glory of Jesus Christ through his word. And Paul says in this passage, in doing that, we are transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. It happens from one degree of glory to another. So it's not an, it's not an immediate thing. It is a progressive piece by piece, day by day, beholding of him that transforms us into his image. And he also says, at the end here, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
So any transformation in your life that you've ever experienced that caused you to be obedient when you would have otherwise been disobedient or to pursue righteousness and joy in God when you otherwise would have pursued unrighteousness and unbelief. Any of those things come from the Spirit of God. And this is our focus today. So this process in Scripture is referred to as sanctification. It is the progressive movement of a believer towards righteousness and holiness and away from sin and evil. So the question is, how do we become like Jesus? How do we become like Christ? And how, where does the Bible fit into that process? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back to where we begin as Christians. What is that like? What is the experience of becoming a Christian? There's a miracle that happens. We already talked about it from 2 Corinthians 4, and I want to look at another text that shows this miracle because it'll be helpful to understanding this reality. Titus 3 is where this text is. Titus 3, verse 4 through 7. Paul says to Titus, When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a stunning passage. This is what happened when you first believed. Everything changed for you. Whether you recognized that or not at the time, everything changed. Paul's clear here too. This salvation is not a result of works of righteousness. It is according to mercy, God's mercy. God justifies us and cleanses us by his own free will. His own grace does this, not by things we do. He pours out his spirit on us and we receive what this text refers to as the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is how Christians are created. It's not anything you did on the outside. It happens by God's hand on the inside of a human being's soul. And if we remember 2 Corinthians 3, it says, For this, this transformation comes from the Lord who is spirit. This is where the transformation comes from. It comes from the Spirit of God. And we see this in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 is going to show us this. So Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this. This is God talking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here's something even more amazing. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
So the first glimpse you get of Jesus in the gospel, something wild happens to you at the very depths of your humanity, in the very depths of your being. We receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. And not only does he cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and not only are we justified by his grace, like we saw in, in Timothy or Titus 3, but it says here we receive a new heart. Our old heart of stone, unresponsive to God, is removed. And God gives us a new heart of flesh. And his spirit inside of us can cause that heart of flesh that he's given us to walk in God's statutes and to obey his rules. So at the very beginning of our walk with Christ, when we first see his glory in the message of the gospel, whether it's proclaimed, whether we just read it in the scriptures, we see who Jesus is. At that moment, our entire life's trajectory changes. We are transformed from the inside out. Theologians refer to it as the, the doctrine of regeneration, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which you can tell they got the language from Titus 3. But here's the deal. You and I both know from the passage we just read in, in uh, Psalm 51 and from our own experience, this reality does not mean that we never struggle with sin again. It does not mean that we've stopped sinning completely or that we are now morally perfect. Even though we've been completely forgiven by God and justified by his grace alone, in God's providence in the life of a Christian, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, why do I still sin? If all the things that this book tells me happen to me, why is it that I, why is there still a fight against sin in the New Testament and in my life? Why do we still battle sinful desire? God in his providence has determined that this is the way that we should trust him and hold his hand and walk. He has deemed it right for us to fight sin in our lives as Christians, lest we perish. Listen to this passage in Romans 8, 13 through 14. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, this is a stunning text because Paul is writing to Roman Christians, people in the church of Rome, people who he hopes have been justified by the same grace that we saw in Titus 3. And yet here he's pressing some serious language toward them. He's saying, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. And he's not just talking about physical death. Everybody experiences physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about an eternal death that we know as hell. And so evidently, Paul feels very strongly that those who are children of God and who are led by the Spirit of God cannot live according to the flesh. They can't. But rather, they are constrained by the power of the Holy Spirit in them to put to death the deeds of the body. They desire inside their hearts to kill sin, their own sin in their lives. 
And now we need to think carefully because we can't get this mixed up. This does not mean ever that Christianity begins with faith and then it turns into rule following and that's how we stay Christians. That is not what this passage means. It's not true at all. It is God who justifies according to Romans 8. You read through the whole chapter in Romans 8, it's very clear, God who justifies, and it isn't because we're awesome. It isn't because we're good. It's because he is good. And Romans 8, 30 says, all who are justified are glorified. It is a a massive truth that we are unfailingly glorified if if we are justified. Yet this war in Romans 8, 13 is a real war. It's not a game with words. It is a real world war. And if we're not fighting it, Paul says we will die. So we should be focused on that last sentence, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, because that's where the battle is won, in our sonship. Now, Paul's point here in this passage is that there is no passive, neutral state in the life of a Christian. There's no position in this battle that is a a middle ground in between fighting sin and not fighting sin. There's nothing like that in the Christian life. In this text, Paul is inviting us as sons and daughters of God to go to war against our own sin. That's what he's inviting us. He's inviting us to war, and we do that according to this passage, by the Spirit of God. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God. And like we saw in Psalm 51, the stakes are high. David longed to have joy in God, but his sin had infiltrated his life and removed it. And now he's pleading with God, "'Give me the joy of your salvation.'" I need that. David recognized this. Paul recognizes this. It is a matter of life and death. The battle must be won. It has to be won. And praise be to God, it will be won. But I want to talk about the fight today a little bit before we look at the victory. Listen to Paul earlier in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6. This is Paul just before saying this, talking about the spirit and the flesh. Listen to what he says. Those who live according to the flesh set their mind, their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So again, Paul here isn't pulling any punches. He wants to be clear with them. There is a stark difference between pursuing life by the Spirit of God and pursuing life by your flesh. One leads to life and one leads to death. And Paul says here that those who live according to the flesh, what they do is they set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what they do. They, they appeal to the desires and dispositions of their flesh. And yet those who live according to the Spirit do the exact same thing, but with the things of the Spirit. 
They set their minds and their desires on the things of the Spirit. So again, we see that sanctification is not a passive process. It's not a passive process. It is an active process. And even though it comes from the Spirit alone, is driven by God unfailingly alone, it is not a passive experience, according to Paul. It is an active experience. We need to fight to set our minds on something. He says we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's how we live according to the Spirit. So what are those things? When he says things of the Spirit, what is he referring to here? Well, Paul, in another letter, helps us because he uses this exact same language to describe the things of the Spirit. The, in Greek, the phrase is used in one other place, in 1 Corinthians 2. So he is talking about his preaching here in 1 Corinthians 2. I want you to listen to the language he uses as he talks about the things of the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 14, we impart this, my preaching, Paul says, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Like I said, Paul here is talking about his own preaching ministry. He's talking about preaching to people, believers and unbelievers, people who are spiritual people, people who are not spiritual, they're natural people. And he says that when he teaches, I'm not teaching from human wisdom. I'm not teaching from just human things. I am teaching spiritual truths, realities that have come to me from the spirit of the living God and not men. And therefore, when a natural person hears them, they think they're foolish. They don't accept them. They don't receive them. Only the only people that, that hear Paul talk and understand him when he talks about things of the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit of God, spiritual people in this text. They are people who've been granted by God graciously a capacity to discern and understand when they're hearing from someone spiritual realities. And so when Paul says things of the Spirit in this text, he is referring to the Word of God. He is referring to the things that he is teaching from God's Word, spiritual truths and spiritual realities that are revealed in the Scriptures. <clears throat> and so, lost my place. Um, and so these are people who have been granted capa the capacity to understand spiritual realities. So setting your mind on the things of the Spirit in Romans 8 is setting your mind on the things that we see in the Word of God. It's what we see in this book that are the spiritual truths and realities. Everything Paul preached that is helpful to us is in this book. There isn't a single thing that Paul said that God would think is helpful for us that isn't included in this book. All of it is here. And so the things of the Spirit in Romans 8 are the realities that are revealed in Scripture. And one of the reasons they're called spiritual truths is because 
Scripture, our Bibles, originated from the Spirit of God. They came from the Spirit. I want you to listen to Peter describe this from 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Listen to what he says here. No prophecy of Scripture, he's talking about our Bibles, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how the Bible was made. This is how the Bible was written. It wasn't someone's bright idea one day. It wasn't a series of bright ideas that got just woven together. According to this verse, if this verse is true, men spoke and men wrote down words, but they were the words of the living God. It says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are human writers. They have their own purposes. They have their own personalities. It's all seen in how they write. However, when they spoke in this book, they spoke for God. God was behind it all. He was the author behind the authors, which is made even more clear in 2 Timothy 3. Listen to this passage. <clears throat> Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so Paul is telling Timothy, listen, all of your Bible, he's just actually spent three or four verses talking about how his mom and his grandmother taught him the Bible growing up. All of the Bible is breathed out by God. The Greek word here is theonostos. Theonostos. God breathed is what it is. The interesting thing in Greek is the word breath or breathe is the same exact word as spirit, pneuma, God breathed. And so this is Paul's way of connecting the word of God with the spirit of God. Without God's spirit, there is no word. There's no Bible without God's spirit. God's spirit caused the Bible to come into existence and He caused the things of the Spirit in Romans 8 that we are to set our minds on to come into existence. And so without God's Spirit, we would not only not have this book, but we would not be able to understand it or comprehend it. And Paul is very clear in this passage that God's Word, Scripture, is profitable for this whole list of things, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God might be complete. This is what we're talking about today. Pursuing holiness, fit for every good work. In other words, when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, the spiritual realities revealed in Scripture, God's own Word, it functions like a kind of weapon against the impulses and desires in our hearts that are sinful. And me talking about the Word of God sounding like a weapon, for those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you already know the Word of God is like a weapon because you're familiar with Ephesians 6, 17. So let me read that text. Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation, Paul says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? 
You can say it. The Word of God. It is the Word of God. So we know that if you've grown up in church, you know this passage. Um, sword drills. You remember sword drills? Take it out. It's right here. Got it here. So we know that God's Word is like a sword, but maybe we haven't thought about really what that means. How do we use the sword? How do we get the sword out and use it against the parts of our lives that don't look like Jesus? So this is critical. Understanding that God's word is a sword is critical because it, we recognize once again that this is the only element in Paul's list here in the armor of God that is a weapon. And it tells us that, that when we use the Bible, it's not a passive usage. It is an active activity. It is an aggressive activity. It's a sword. We fight our sin with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So how does this work? How do we go to war with Scripture against the desires and passions of our flesh that have not yet yielded to the Lordship of Christ? Think about it. We're believers. I'm going to hold into, take it for granted that you are all trusting in Christ. You are believers. You are sons and daughters of God. You are led by the Spirit of God. You desire to not sin anymore. You desire to put to death the deeds of the body. How do we do that? Before I answer that question with a story from Scripture, um, I just want to be real with you. Like This burden, fighting sin, is more important to me in my life than it has ever been in my walk with God. The older I get, I, I, and, and I'm hoping some of you can relate to this, the more I hate my own sin the more I hate the ways in which I dishonor God and I just want to be done with them. I just want to not have those inclinations or impulses. In fact, the longer I walk with Christ and the more I, I read this book, the more I feel a desire to pursue righteousness and holiness and the less I feel a laxity with that. Um, and this is not to earn or, uh, or seek approval from God. We cannot earn anything from God. We do not deserve anything from God. Um, like Titus 3 said, we are justified by grace alone and not on the basis of anything that we can do. But as a child of God, I long for the Spirit of God to put to death everything in me that causes other people pain. Everything in me that is selfish, I long for that. And like Romans 8.14 says, I think this was what it means to be a son or daughter of God. There is in you a, an angst to get rid of the parts of you that don't look like Jesus. And the thought of dishonoring our King and our Savior by doing things and saying things that make Him look less valuable than He is, is almost more horrific than anything we can even conceive of, if we really give it time to think about what that is. So personally speaking, I long for the day that I don't have to deal with this anymore. It's, it's coming at some point when Christ comes back, and I hope that you can relate to that, but I want to talk about the fight. Let's answer this question. How do we day in and day out deal with this? According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, we saw, we saw that sanctification, transformation into the image of Christ, comes by beholding the glory of the Lord. And we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So how does that happen? To answer that question, I want to turn to Hebrews 11, and I want to look at one story in Hebrews 11. 
It's a short story. I want to explore a scene in the life of Moses where this plays out. And this, I believe, is one of the most helpful passages in Scripture to show us how we take our sword and how we fight. How do we pursue righteousness in our lives? So turn with me if you've got it. Hebrews 11, verse 24. We'll look at 25 as well. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So this is Moses. As you know, Moses is responsible for the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And those came into being because God carried him along, the Spirit of God carried him along, and he wrote as God gave him what he was supposed to write. But this event that we're seeing described in Hebrews 11 happened prior to the inscripturation of the Old Testament. None of the Bible had been written down at this point. <laughs> Even before Moses' encounter with the burning bush, this scene happens. He's just now become an adult, and he is realizing here, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. And he recognizes that even though his fellow Egyptian friends and brothers and sisters in Pharaoh's house desired to call him a son of Pharaoh's daughter, he refuses this. He doesn't want to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says here that he refused the title and everything that that title afforded him, everything that it entails, he refuses and he desires instead to be mistreated with the people of God, his own people, the Hebrews, who are in dire slavery. Moses knew that staying with Egypt, staying in alignment with Egypt, and taking this title, he was committing himself to the service of false gods. It's not the God of my people. He was committing himself to the service of the wicked practices of the Egyptian people. And he recognized it for what it was. This is an invitation to sin. What's at stake here for Moses is the pleasure of sin. He's making a decision based on whether he should engage in the pleasure of sin. It says here, though, he would rather be abused as a Hebrew slave than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin that would be afforded a prince of Egypt. Now, that is an amazing thing. Egypt is the greatest kingdom in the world. Every earthly desire he could conceive of in his mind was at his fingertips. It's the most powerful nation in the world at this time. And yet Moses looks at that and says, no, I'd rather be treated as a slave with God's people than to taste the pleasure of sin. And he says, no, by faith. Well, faith in what? 
There's no Bible right now. What, what is your faith in? What did you believe in? Let's read further. Verse 26 says this. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I love the book of Hebrews. This verse is one of the most powerful verses for me in the book of Hebrews. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater treasure than everything that Egypt could offer him. Now, what in the world could this mean? Reproach of Christ. Jesus isn't even born for another 1,200 years at the very least. What are you talking about here? What is the author of Hebrews trying to get at by, by using this language about Moses? Well, like I said, more wrote, Moses wrote the Torah. And as far as, as we know, all Moses had to go on were the stories of how God had dealt with the people of Israel, what would become the Torah later on. How did God deal with his people from the very beginning on? The oral tradition. And in one of those stories, at the very beginning, it has a part that goes something like this. This is Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. Moses would later write this down. It shows the fall of man and it shows the curse that is issued over the head of the serpent for inviting evil and wickedness to sweep into this world like a flood and infect everything and everyone. And what God's saying to the serpent here is he's promising the serpent something. He's saying one day there will be a reckoning with someone he calls the offspring of the woman. And though the serpent may bruise that offspring's heel, the offspring suffering great enmity and venom from that bite, but ultimately the offspring would put his foot over the head of the serpent and crush it. In being bitten by the serpent. This is the Christ that God promised. This is the reproach that Moses knew something of. He knew something of this promise that there would be an offspring that would come one day, a Messiah, a Christ. He would be at odds with the serpent. There would be a kind of reproach attached to him. And so looking back to Hebrews eleven twenty six. Bernie, could you switch back to the passage before this? 11.26, what does it mean for Moses to consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth, greater wealth than all of Egypt's treasure? This is what it means. Moses looks at all the pleasures and joys 
he has unrestricted at the tip of his fingers in the kingdom of Egypt, being prince there. And he sees all of that. And then he looks at the value of Jesus Christ. And all the reproach and humiliation and shame he will experience with Jesus as a slave. And he says Christ is worth it all. Christ is that glorious. The offspring that God promised to crush the head of the serpent is 10,000 times greater treasure than everything that Egypt can offer me. It is no question. And this is how Moses goes to war. This is how he fights the fleeting pleasure of sin. He does it not by creating a list of rules. He does it by, by clinging to a superior treasure, a superior pleasure, And we call that pleasure Jesus Christ. Moses does this by beholding the promise that God gave his forefathers and receiving it with such joy that it severs the head of sin. And so this means two massive things for us in our lives today. The first is this. Simple rule following is not sanctification. And I'm just... I'm being real with you, many rule followers will be outside the kingdom of God on the last day. Moralism is not a synonym for Christianity. The Christian human being is a completely distinct and different species from the moralist. Our pursuit of righteousness as Christians is a battle for a superior joy called Christ. And let me show you that in Philippians 3. Listen to Paul. I count everything as loss. Everything. Good, bad, does not matter. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, every sinful pleasure you can imagine, whether it's getting angry at somebody who's frustrated you, whether it's something you shouldn't be looking at on the internet, whether it's how you talk to your kids, all of those things. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, the pleasure experienced in them, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul sees the superior value of Jesus and he's willing to give up every other pleasure if that's what it costs to gain Christ. That's the first thing. That's the first reality. The second is this. We see this superior joy, Jesus Christ, in the word of God through eyes of faith. Remember, it says of Moses, he did all of that by faith. By faith in what? What he knew of Christ. In other words, the promise of of Christ came to him and his soul tasted the promise and experienced the the reality of Jesus in some way. And it was so true, so glorious, so wonderful that he was willing to stake his life on it. And so when we come to this book, we come to see Jesus. We come to know him. We come to treasure him. We come to adore him so that with Paul, and with Moses, we can say, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as garbage next to the value of Jesus. 
He is so supremely worthy. I want to gain him as my treasure alone. And this is what it means to put to death the deeds of the body. This is what it means to take the sword, cling to God's word, his promises, how glorious Christ really is, and kill sin. Now the question is, what happens when we fail to do this? We hate our own sin. I'm not talking about an unbeliever. I'm talking about a son or daughter of God. We hate our sin, but in a moment of weakness, in a moment of unbelief, a moral failure happens. What do we do then? Well, I would simply suggest that we do exactly what David did in Psalm 51. If we're a son or daughter of God and we are being led by the Spirit of God inside of us, when we sin, we immediately go to Christ. We immediately lay it at his feet and repent, just like David. And I promise Christ is faithful and just to forgive every single sin his son or daughter struggles with. And then listen, pick up your sword, get off the ground, and go back to war. That's what a child of the living God, filled with the Spirit of God, does. They go to war. Momentary setbacks in this fight should only drive us deeper into the arms of God. And it should cause us to be more ferocious in knowing the value of this treasure that we have. And we do that through the Word of God. That's where we see Him with the eyes of our hearts. This is really an interesting dynamic in Scripture. If you look at Scripture, the way that the New Testament describes the Christian, it is not a passive description. Paul refers to us as fellow soldiers in Christ. The good fight of faith. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against powers and principalities who want to use our sin against us. Real, authentic Christianity is is a violent thing but not violent against other people ever. It is a violence against the parts of us, the the paradigms in us, the, the impulses and desires in us who would be violent against people, who would take what's not ours. So we attack our sin ruthlessly. And as we prepare for communion here in a moment, um, I just want to remind you that, that though this battle is an active fight and though we must engage it every day of our lives, the only reason we can fight, the only reason we can fight is because Christ has already fought for us. Christ has already done the work on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is not only the foundation for our justification before God, it is not only the foundation for his imputation of righteousness on us, that makes us guiltless before the throne. And it is not only the foundation for every sin that he's taken from us and put on Christ to die for us. It is the foundation for every ounce of strength you will need to fight sin. All of that was purchased by Jesus. Listen to 1 Peter 2. He, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do that? that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Part of what was secured on that cross wasn't just the opportunity to fight. It was the victory in this fight. He didn't just secure an opportunity to win this fight. He secured the victory, which is meaningless. An opportunity is meaningless to people who are enslaved in sin. 
Someone had to be decisive in this fight, and it is Jesus Christ. So hear me in this. You are not alone in this fight. Christ fights for you. He's already done the work. He took all of your sins, every sin that you will ever commit. The sins you fight in your life are forgiven sins because you are justified children before God. He bore them on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus Christ, with his own blood, purchased for us sanctification. He gave us everything we need to win this battle. And so take your sword, I'll take my sword, and we will fight because Christ fights for us. As a way of encouragement, I want to read to you one passage that Paul promises to first, uh, first, uh, the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to take this not as something that was written to a church 2,000 years ago. I want you to take this, if you are a, a believer in Christ, as a promise made specifically for you. Receive it as though God in Christ Jesus, through Paul, is talking to you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Your sanctification, though it is a battle you must fight and win, is a battle that rests in the faithfulness of God. He is the one who is sanctifying you. Every fight that you have against temptation, every striving for holiness, comes from the one who called you. And he's going to see your sanctification through until his son comes. He started this fight on the cross, and he's going to finish it when he sees you. So keep fighting. Take the sword and the beauty of Christ Jesus, embrace him in the scriptures, and kill the deeds of the flesh. This victory, the victory we have, this verse is telling us is already ours. So we need to stand and fight and believe it. Let's pray.